for your listeners and for the marketplace that we operate in, I believe that this COVID situation in the world has accelerated the adoption of technology that was already happening at a, at a slower rate. And the adoption of that technology is going to release a whole new class of entrepreneurs. And the thesis for a series seed investor is going to change dramatically. And you're going to see reinvestment into very early stage companies to solve some of these problems that have teased out as a consequence of these middle stage technology companies sort of teething. And there's a lot of capital to be deployed by venture capitalists. So I think it's going to accelerate dramatically. So the challenge is going to be dealing with growth. How do we onboard employees? How do we maintain organizational culture? How do we maintain data analytics and clarity and cleanse? You know, all the sort of problems that come with growth. Hey, this is Danny, and welcome to the Spend Culture Stories podcast. You know, we're not just another boring finance or procurement podcast. We explore the sometimes challenging stories and learnings when people, spend, and organizations meet, and how to drive sustainable growth while still balancing control and agility. We have vulnerable, honest, and raw conversations with only the most forward-thinking CFOs, finance executives, and procurement leaders who are challenging the status quo, that the way we've done it is just not enough. This is Spend Culture Stories. Hi, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Spend Culture Stories. This is Danny, and today I am joined with Evan Wells, and he is the VP BizOps and Financial Services at Giraffe, a tool that helps connect your financial and operational data, giving you the ability to explore historical results, budget, and forecast your three-way financial statements. What's exciting also about Giraffe is that they recently raised a $8.3 million Series A this year in July. So congrats, Evan, and thank you so much for joining us on the show today. Yeah, thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here, Danny. Definitely. Maybe you can do your own intro to the audience. Sure, yeah. Thanks for having me, Danny. My name is Evan Wells, as you had uh, pointed out just a moment ago. I run uh, business operations and financial services here at Giraffe. But you know, like any early stage company, we wear a lot of different hats. So you sort of roll your sleeves up and do whatever you need to do to get things done. You know, it's hard mm-hmm. to raise a Series A, and uh, we've been very lucky and fortunate to uh, have that hard work pay off with uh, with the Series A round. We provide a simplification for financial forecasting to business leaders uh, who would like to understand what their business performance looks like in, in the perspective period. And perspective is a fancy word for saying what the future holds. I like to think of it as uh, providing mental health to business professionals <laughs> because there's something about knowing that you're going to have cash in the bank six months from now based on certain circumstances that you've baked into your sort of business assumptions. And sometimes it's very hard and challenging to connect that information with your accounting data and do that in Excel. I mean, you end up fighting with Excel versus just having an answer. So mm-hmm. you know, very passionate about what we do, obviously. I love that. And you know, you are like a finance leader yourself. And I think um, last time we met in person in the Bay Area, you were saying you love this company so much that you joined it. Yeah, I was a customer for about a year. So I was very fortunate. I've been very lucky in my career, I would say. doesn't come without mm-hmm. hard work, that's for sure. But When I left PwC, I joined a medical device manufacturer. And while I was there, we had large budgets, you know, because medical device companies, you know, you raise a lot of capital because it's a lot of intense capital requirements as it relates to manufacturing a medical device that's implantable in a human being. I mean, it's good that it costs a lot of money for these companies to get to market because you're talking about putting something into a human being, you know, so it's a lot of money. Uh, As a result, though, you had large budgets, right, which are, you know, uh, above and beyond what you would see in, say, a SaaS business, a Series B stage company. 
a Series B stage medical device manufacturer is going to have like, I don't know, $80, $100 million Series B, which would be tremendous for a SaaS business to be almost too much. You wouldn't be able to spend it, which sounds crazy for those listening that think about raising a series seed. You always think to yourself like, wow, that's so crazy. Like just even a million dollars is a lot. Well, you know, the money's there if you keep at it. So I implemented a tool there called Adaptive Insights and Adaptive Insights was recently acquired by Workday. So we're talking, you know, enterprise grade fortune 500 level type stuff. And so it was like a hundred thousand dollars and I got spoiled by it because with the press of a couple buttons, it basically did my job, which was great. Uh, and so I kept, when I joined the startup game and I know we're going to get into it, uh, here in a little bit, but when I joined the startup game, I kept my ear to the street to, to see if somebody was going to come in with a product that was similar with a SMB price. Um, and there just wasn't anything. I couldn't believe it went from like a hundred thousand dollars adaptive insights to Excel. Uh, there were some other players in the market, uh, that did, you know, one or two things good, but I needed like a cohesive Excel replacement. And that's what I found with draft. It did what I needed. So here I am. I love it. And I think that's kind of like the best way to join a company is when you really believe in the product and you believe in the team. And I feel like you have both at Giraffe. So it's a great fit for you. Yeah, thanks. Yeah, the team thing was a big deal, actually. It's been a long time since I've thought about that, Danny. So like, you know, uh, between the founders, they had all worked together previously or had previous exits or previous experience at early stage companies through growth and things. And, you know, you start to understand that venture capital thesis around you're investing in the founder, you know, not mm-hmm. necessarily totally the technology. There's a big piece of that, the staying ability, you know, the durability of somebody who has the fortitude to make it 10 years. That's huge. Yeah, absolutely. And like, I think a lot of people think that, you know, when you're um, looking for a new startup to invest in as an investor, people think that, oh, you got to have like a really, really good product. But really, it's like the later stages where they actually care about that. And the beginning stages about, okay, what's the team like? Do we have actually a cohesive team that has a longer term vision? Well, I love talking about this. I can talk about this all day, too. <laughs> I can talk about that all day long. And that's what we do with our financial tools. We help people understand what the size of the market looks like for them and how much revenue they think they can capture from it and how much money they need to get there and all these sorts of things. So, Yeah, absolutely. Such an amazing tool, especially for the finance listeners out there. If you haven't checked out Giraffe, definitely do so. So one question, we know we talk a lot about organizational changes and process changes in the podcast, especially, obviously, during this crazy year that we've been through. It's like a world event cubed, three times, three times, three. <laughs> 100%. You know, like the more serious finance people that come on the podcast, they're always talking about like, oh, black swan events. How do we prepare for another one? Versus the other side of the situation where they're like, how do we prevent shit from happening? Right, <laughs> Again, right, right, right. Putting out the fires. So yeah. what do you think was the biggest challenge for you and the giraffe team during this time? Was there anything that you had to change right away? What action plan did you lay out? So, you know, we were um, exceptionally lucky in that we were already a bespoke sort of organization, meaning if I was to be sitting in our WeWork office in San Francisco, more than 80% of my day would have been running around looking for a room to steal from somebody so I could have a private, quiet conversation on Zoom. Because a lot of what we're doing in the software world and the software game is screen sharing. This is what's so great about Zoom is you can share your screen and like educate and teach people and see what's going on. The collaboration space was very nice to have, though, as a team and like sort of write stuff on the wall. And, you know, we literally like wrote on the glass. So that was great. So we were we were set up pretty good. We had already been using Slack and we were pretty much fully committed into HubSpot. And so uh, we didn't feel a lot of the teething, if you will, of uh, what a lot of organizations have gone through that were strictly dedicated to going into the office. So, you know, it'll be interesting to sort of go down the rabbit hole 
post-mortem and see like what we did right and wrong. But I feel like we were in a position that we, we have actually shown other people how it could be done. Which has, been, which has been great. I would say that you certainly lose. The hardest challenge that we had was uh, around the feedback on product, I would say, because when you're in a room sitting together and all pointing at the same computer screen, there's this sixth sense thing that happens when you can sense people have like a really a passionate thing that you want to say. And our company, we're passionate around our product and we have all very strong opinions. And so when you're on Zoom, you want to respect your colleagues, right? You want to respect your business partners and let people speak up and say what they think. But at the same time, it also might be like sitting forward in your chair, scratching at an itch, you know, to like jump in and tell them what you think, you know, but when you kind of yeah. lose that when you're, when you lose the physical space. So we're still sort of working our way through that as a leadership team in terms of how to have that cohesive conversation in a digital world. Um, if anybody figures it out, let me know. Maybe it's virtual yeah. reality or something. I don't know. <laughs> Definitely. Especially in startups, right? Like it's always that mentality of speaking your mind, even though someone else might disagree with you. So I feel like that kind of culture is harder to do on remote calls. Yeah. Because what are you going to do, right? Are you going to like click a button that says raise your hand on Zoom, right? Like, yeah. It's interesting you say that, Danny. So when I think about like disagreements amongst and at any stage of a company or just disagreements, period, with other professionals and I always like to think of myself as working with other professionals. I don't think about hierarchy and things. I think about, you know, what are we going to learn from each other and how do we help each mm-hmm. other be successful? You know, all tides rise together kind of thing. What you get when you have like these interpersonal disagreements is you're really discovering that you're you're finding your blind spots. You know, when everybody agrees, there's got to be a blind spot in the room. You're constantly having to search out your blind spot. And I think that's the salient point here as it relates to having that in-person conversation, just that natural progression of a conversation that occurs in a physical space versus over Zoom. It's kind of lost mm-hmm. on Zoom because you, you might click off and lose your attention to this other shiny object on your screen or or somebody walking by outside or something. And the you know it's kind of hard to tell if somebody's looking directly at you on the Zoom call or whatnot. So there's this thing that happens, interpersonal communication that is lost. And so I think we'll be contending with this issue for a long time, just as a humanity thing. Yeah, definitely. Especially when we don't know when this whole situation is going to boil over. Maybe this is actually just the status quo for the longest time. I know for our company, we are actually implementing like a remote indefinitely policy where if you want to work anywhere, you technically can just make sure that you have the processes laid out and you know, everything. Right. Hopefully they budgeted appropriately, though, for those who don't work remote forever. They want an office space. You get that expense into the forecast. <laughs> yeah, like, totally. Super geeky forecasting joke, but <laughs> <laughs> we're going to save a bunch of money. Everybody works from home. <laughs> How do we reduce expenses? You know? <laughs> yeah, 100%. And that's kind 100%. of why, like, I guess a lot of finance leaders are like, oh, this actually might be a good thing for us. You know, we don't have to pay for a physical space. Right. Well, if you look at the Zoom socks, Zoom was over $500 today. I mean, it's just remarkable what's, what's happened there. So anyways, yeah. Yeah, that's crazy. I was just curious also, since we're on the topic of expenses and also spend, what are the areas that Giraffe had to cut back on versus, you know, double down on during this time? Well, it wasn't necessarily a cutback by choice, but, you know, conference season, mm-hmm. which over the summer months for the accounting industry is tremendous, right? You have ZeroCon, QuickBooks Connect, AccountX, like, you and I have even hung out at one of these conferences. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's where I got this mouse pad. Uh, for those who you can't see it, but I have the same exact mouse pad as Danny has on her background. <laughs> and that's a substantial expense to a business. Conference spend, I would argue, for an early stage company is likely the number two expense next to headcount, you know, next to a fully burdened headcount. 
because that's where you get a lot of your early adopters. You find your early adopters in these conferences. You develop relationships with people within the industry. Anybody who's trying to do a startup, go to the domain expert conference and find other people who are like-minded and believe in your vision and product and will adopt it early. So like that was one area that we definitely saved on costs, though one could argue that you know, you got to spend money to make money. So one could argue that by not going to conference season, we also lost some revenue potentially, right? We lost some opportunities. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of a catch 22. You know, I personally moved from San Francisco to Texas, you know, moves like that in organizations are going to save on taxes and things, you know, because there's no longer the expense of living in California for a headcount that doesn't live there any longer, you know, stuff like that. That's probably some areas that save, but nothing explicit that we call out. Yeah, that's actually something that I've never even thought about, you know, relocating to a different place. The taxes are going to be different. Dramatically. I mean, California's 13.3% employee tax, you know, the wow. employer side is just, you know, on the top end of the of the spectrum. So it's going to be really interesting to sort of see what happens here. Is there sort of like a this flocking into the center of the country that's happening? No kidding. You know, the Bay Area is already super expensive to live in. So now you're giving people more options during this time. Yeah. Keep up that Zoom. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So just curious, what action plan did you lay out with the leadership team to actually get to Series A? Because that's something really exciting to learn from your experience. Well, I'm very lucky to be working with Martin. Martin is, um, you know, he's the, uh, one of the co-founders and CEO. And when he went to raise the Series A, you know, he raised the Series A. And, you know, we as a team, he basically focused primarily on that. So that was the action plan. You know, we're teed up, we're ready to go. We've got the right team in place to sort of hold this thing together and keep moving forward and continuing to sell revenue with our sales leader, Ryan, and things. And Martin focused on raising an A, which is if you read or listen to any of what founders go through raising Series A, you're pretty much fully dedicated to that process for six months. And that's, mm -hmm. think about that. You know, you, you come up with this idea, you build it out, you put it out into the world, it starts morphing, <laughs> you know, changing in ways that you may not even want it to change. And then you have to go raise more money. So I feel very fortunate to have uh, business partners like that, that, that we're doing that with. So that was basically the plan. What was your role from the finance side? What were the things that you had to kind of prepare for um, in conjunction with what Martin was working on? I would say that it was really helping support our sales channel. So previously to pre-Series A, a lot of the solutions engineering and things that was uh, tr taking place in our business was, was being conducted by Martin because between Martin and me at the company, we're both subject matter experts as it relates to financial forecasting and reporting. And our sales leader, who I will defend you know, to the grave, knows how to do some basic financial forecasting now. Uh, so he's not just some sales leader who doesn't know how to do financial forecasting, but you know, he, he's not going to get into the intricacies of some of the more technical higher end type stuff. And so, you know, stepping into that role and taking over some of those responsibilities um, was a big move in terms of uh, organizational change sort of at, at Giraffe. And then at the same time, you know, we hired a lot of people. So we, throughout the AA process, you know, we hired two more sales reps, three more support and service people. So there's organizational growth that takes place as well. And something that I like to think about a lot is I consider my customers like an extension of my team. So like, I don't think of my customer as somebody who's just paying some license fee who's using our product, I consider them like they're sitting in the bullpen with me and they're trying to tackle an accounting and finance problem and just have mental health. I always lean on that mental health thing because people in finance and accounting, your job's not done until the numbers tie out or something agrees. Like you're there, <laughs> you know, you're, yeah. you're there when the lights turned on, the lights turned off. So if you can provide a product that alleviates some of that stuff, it's a pretty big deal, I think. So, so yeah. Definitely. And I know you're super passionate about this topic. So what are the blockers and the challenges when it comes to forecasting that you've seen? 
I would say that the number one mistake is people overcomplicate things, and I'm not an exception to this rule. I have a document that I give to people that I begin to work with that's called Working with Evan, and it sort of outlines, you know, I check my email in the morning, Slack me if it's something quick, if it's something longer, please book 30 minutes on my calendar, sort of management style, self-management style. And in that document, I even say like, you know, I have a tendency to overcomplicate things and you can call me out on it. It's okay. It's totally open game. And, you know, that's just like the natural intuition, I think, of a financial person is this thing Excel has really allowed us to become so precise and so overcomplicated. You sort of lose the, you lose the war and you sort of lose sight of what you're really trying to answer, right? You get lost in the numbers and pulling yourself out of that and seeing sort of above the fold is sort of the play on words with like our giraffe, you know, the giraffe's heads above the trees and sees out into oh. the future and things and you know, I really like that metaphor. And so like, to me, that's like the number one thing that people fall into. The second thing I think that financial leaders and things fall into as it relates to uh, forecasting and things is trying to make it too precise, which then is the flip side of making it overcomplicated. Because when you're trying to get it so precise, you try to overcomplicate it. And so I'm always saying to people, would it be considered successful? So like a KPI, we talk about KPIs or OKRs, you know, objectives and key results. If you were to hold an OKR on a financial leader, someone who's responsible for the numbers and predicting what the business is going to do based on the assumptions of a number of management team members, and you were to say you were to predict when you run out of cash within a month and you have cash for three years. So you're predicting cash from three years from now within a month, like you were doing a spectacular job. And so when people try to get so precise, it's like within like one week. It's like, come on, you're way overcomplicating this thing, you know? Like we could use a the back of an envelope and probably get a more precise answer than your majorly precise model. So it's it's yeah. sort of an analysis of paralysis, I think, is is what happens. It's unfortunate that in a lot of ways, I guess unfortunate is the wrong word. The right word is more like maybe it's more like um like I want to use an analogy, like a chef who's trying to make a spicy dish who's made a spicy dish hundreds of times and you've just used every single spice possible and you've arrived at this thing that is now delicious and amazing and everybody loves. And it took you like a thousand iterations to get to that spicy dish. And so if you want to go through the pain in the process of, of that as a finance leader, that's fine. But being able to explain it in a simple and meaningful way to people who aren't necessarily interested in debits and credits and complicated revenue models. Yeah, you got to simplify it. Yeah, definitely. I love that motto, like keeping it simple. Because like, you know, I've also worked with a lot of finance leaders, unfortunately, who are on the other side where they would explain it in their way. And I'd be like, can you speak English, please? <laughs> if you <Yeah>. could. <laughs> I say it like this. And I say, simplify the complex and speak to me like I'm a squirrel. Oh, yeah, basically. We're like, I'm five. Everybody speaks squirrel language. And if you don't, you should yeah. it out. It's pretty good. <laughs> <laughs> it's nuts. It's Pun nuts. Intended. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. I'm gonna steal that. Yeah. I've never followed it up with that. Now you know. Now you know. <laughs> yeah, we did talk a little bit about the finance leader and the type of finance leader you are. So I kind of want to understand what role do you think the finance leader of the future should be focused on? And what are some of the key skills that you think they should foster for for the next like two to three years? Data. I mean, you've definitely got it like the, one of the key, like, so, so you have hard skills, you have soft skills. And I would say one of the hard, hard skills that you have to have as a finance leader is understanding data, data sources, and where things exist in the world in this digital world. The idea of understanding complicated debits and credits and ASC 606 and all this software is going to solve all this stuff. I mean, this is like the lowest hanging fruit for automation. You see like mm -hmm. a lot of players entering the market, but the three-way financials have been the three-way financials for a very long time. And there's a lot of assumptions that are baked into that, but Software is going to solve a lot of that over our career. My entire career is going to be implementing financial systems to automate things 
to make it faster and more readily available. It doesn't change the amount of data that exists in the world and the ability to work across big old data sets. And so this is a key tenant, I think, for the financial leader. And I believe even the AICPA has asked the CPA profession to give feedback to the CPA exam in order to make it more relevant as it relates to what financial leaders deal with today in terms of being like the master data owner of the company, because data is a really big deal. It's what you make decisions off of. I would say from a soft skill point of view, on the other side of it, I've always believed that the CFO and the COO are sort of a blend of each other. And it all depends on what sort of CEO you're working with, right? So if you take Adam Newman, who was the CEO of WeWork, he went through like four or five different CMOs, right? But that's because he's a CMO himself. If you look at Travis Kalkinick, he went at Uber, he went through like five or six COOs. That's because he's a COO, right? And so when I was at Apollo Window Surgery where I implemented Adaptive, the CEO who was uh, there post-mortem to a large acquisition in a reverse IPO that we did, he was a CFO. To me, the CFO and the COO are a complement to whatever the CEO is not. The CEO doesn't have a job title. I mean, they don't have like a job description, excuse me, they don't have like a job description. Find me a job description of a CEO. A little bit of everything. A little bit of everything, right. But there's, they're going to have unconscious bias and they're going to index towards the things they're successful at. And so I've always tried to be a business partner to the leadership team and the, and the CEO in terms of like what, what's on their plate that I can take. And I especially uh, think that having the personification, especially with the, the new generation entering the workforce, the personification of uh, lifting up the organization and, and making uh, everybody relevant to the decision-making process and feeling included in like advancing themselves and being able to block and tackle for the CEO as much as possible so that they can do things that are above the clouds and keep them out of the clouds. Like that to me is the quintessential thing. I love that. I think what you're talking about is also just empowering the team rather than kind of restricting them from an angle. Because, you know, sometimes when people think like CFO, the role of the CFO, it's people think, oh, controls, or people think like, oh, they're just going to say no to my budget. But what you're talking about is really more of a cohesive empowerment, giving them the data, giving them the insights so that they can make the better decisions. Precisely. The transparency, right? And that's where it comes into that that data conversation. It's like, it's a classic Geigo problem, you know, garbage in, garbage out. If you hire good people and you give them good data and empower them to make good decisions, you will have a good organization, period. Mm -hmm. It's all about alignment, which is where a forecast comes in. The whole point of a planning process and a forecast isn't so that you can predict your numbers perfectly, especially at an early stage company. Now, when you get to a publicly traded, more mature company where you're providing guidance to the street, that's a different podcast. But like when you're an early stage company where you're who approved this purchase kind of thing, like where's the lines drawn? It's more about permitting the organization to remain flexible and be able to flex mm-hmm. around that alignment that is only arrived at when you do a planning process that says, here's what we think our revenue is. Here's our ideal customer. Here's where the market segments we're going after. And then being able to say no to the things that don't fit into that spectrum and understand why you're saying no. That's a really hard problem to solve. Yeah, absolutely. And I feel like um, what we, we mentioned earlier is trying to avoid those shiny objects, focusing on the right things. That's more important than trying to fix the fires of the wrong things. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I always, if you look back over the last year of your life and you say, what were the decisions I made that actually are meaningful today? You're only going to be able to find maybe one or two. 
if you're very lucky if you find three, you've made three really good decisions. Um, and that's yeah. generally in life, you know, then boil that into like a work life. Like maybe there's one, maybe. So, you know, it's, it's not about being busy and sitting in a rocking chair back and forth. It's about thinking and analyzing and coming with your own point of view and, and a reason as to why you have that point of view and being able to communicate that is I think the key. Yeah, totally. Just curious, since we were talking a little bit more about, you know, empowerment of the team and company culture, how would you describe the spend culture of the giraffe team? And how would that change as you guys perhaps move to a series B or series C? Well, for those uh, venture capitalists listening on the call, when we get series B, we're going to spend it all. <laughs> uh, so we're going to cut that out. Just yeah, we cut that out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I would say the culture is very cognizant of the mission. We've been very fortunate to hire individuals who are sort of connected to the team in some sort of fashion. I've worked with nearly every person on my team in the past, and I've maintained relationships with them for a lot of years. And so I guess it's the old oxymoron of, you know, it's all about who you know kind of thing. But I would say that the culture as we scale, that's a problem that we have to solve in the future. And I, that's a leadership. That's like a whole cohesive organization sort of conversation. I would certainly be leaning on the side of like, continuing to empower people to make decisions on their own and support our customers in a successful and meaningful way. Mm -hmm. I think where most of the challenges are going to become, and I think this is what happens to any scaling company is, you know, when you go from series C to series A, you know, there's like a lot of, uh, there's a lot of wheeling and dealing on the revenue line. And so that wheeling and dealing becomes less and less over time because you become more and more, you arrive at the station of what your product packages look like. You kind of sell whatever you can sell to kind of get to Series A. You, that's, maybe you shouldn't have sold it something. You know? <laughs> that's where it's tough. You know, that's where it's really tough. You get expensive customers. Definitely, it's like a learning curve. You know, is the sticking? If it sticks, how do we scale that? How do we make sure it's better? Right. From the controls end, I know we kind of talked about this, where you're talking about staying flexible and staying transparent. How can a startup really balance, you know, the financial control side, but also with staying agile? What do you think? It's like a happy medium. So what I've done in the past and, and, you know, we're a pretty small group right now. We have one person leading marketing, Blake Oliver, and um, it's pretty easy to keep the reins on spend. But if you have like a number of individuals in your organization, first off, you have to have a purchase requisition process, some sort of PRF, if you will, purchase requisition form or some sort of request with approval, with limits and things. You have to have a delegation of authority matrix um, so that, you know, people are empowered to know I can spend up to $1,000 cumulatively this much per quarter. So cumulatively over a quarter, I can spend $2,500 and I can spend up to $1,000 on one single purchase. So they don't, they're not able to go out and buy a new MacBook Pro because that's over the $1,000 without an approval, but they're able to buy office supplies like a printer or something for their house, right? Mm-hmm. It's a lot of overhead to approve that expense, you know? <laughs> like, but they need it. Obviously, you know, if you hire good people, they need it. So what I've done in the past with that is the delegation of authority matrix, like I just described, which outlines what those metrics are. But, but also credit cards are extremely powerful if you use them correctly with points and things. So you can put limits on how much credit cards and things are as it relates to spend So and get points. So it's good. I know you're a huge, huge fan of Brex. I think we talked about that last time. Brex is onto something with uh, that working capital line, you know, with the banks and things. Um, mm-hmm. uh, it's, I'd be curious to see how they're doing today because the banks are swimming in cash. But <laughs> It's a great business model. They know startups really well. Great business model, yeah. All right. I know we are leading into the latter half of the conversation. I think we're kind of running out of time. So maybe we'll leave it at this last question. And we're asking all of our guests this one. What do you think will be the biggest challenge that tech CFOs will face in the next few years as we transition out of the recession? Growth. 
I think this has poured fuel on the fire of tech faster than we were ready for it. I think we minimize what the 20 to 30 year old generation is bringing to the table for people who are financial leaders. Certainly there's the exception to the role where you're going to have somebody who's in their 20s who's a financial leader and highly successful. Let's be honest. So you need 10, 15 years of experience before you really understand the complexities of the problems and you know decision-making process and things. And that's not a nag on being younger or anything like that. That's just the reality of how things work. You know, you, you don't just like go play professional sports, you know, you have to kind of like go through the thing. And certainly there's exceptions out there that will poke their head up. But I believe like the, the Kraft Heinz CFO, I think is like 32 or something like this, you know, like, Oh, wow. Yeah. So there are exceptions out there, but I think that as it relates to tech and the problems we're going to have coming out of this, and I don't even know if you could call it a recession just yet, because we had two quarters of negative growth. And then now we're like back. I mean, the more economy is crazy. I have a lot of thoughts going through my mind because I can think about this from a lot of different dimensions. And the way that I'll answer it is this, is for your listeners and for the marketplace that we operate in, I believe that this COVID situation in the world has accelerated the adoption of technology that was already happening at a slower rate. And the adoption of that technology is going to release a whole new class of entrepreneurs. And the thesis for a series seed investor is going to change dramatically And you're going to see reinvestment into very early stage companies to solve some of these problems that have teased out as a consequence of these middle stage technology companies sort of teething. And there's a lot of capital to be deployed by venture capitalists. So I think it's going to accelerate dramatically. So the challenge is going to be dealing with growth. How do we onboard employees? How do we maintain organizational culture? How do we maintain data analytics and clarity and cleanse? You know, all the sort of problems that come with growth. That sounds really exciting, actually, based on what you're saying, because it seems to be there's going to be a lot of new startups that will pop up during this time, especially when there's a crisis that happens. People are smart. You know, they think, oh, now there's a need for X problem or Y problem. And I think the VCs are going to jump on that, too. PwC releases a thing called moneytree.com. It's it's, Mm -hmm. it's quite good. And there's a lot of capital to deploy. And the thesis, from what I understand from some of the investor communities, pre-COVID, the thesis was many of the entrepreneurs who were risk seeking had already seeked. So there wasn't any more money to invest into people making the jump. And so to leave Facebook or to leave Google and start a company is uncommon. 10 years ago, it was much more common. The thesis is going to change. So whenever you see like a change transaction, like some sort of movement of any kind, there's typically growth associated with that. It's a good thing. We should all hold grab onto that and just ride the wave, you know? Totally. Going to be some really interesting opportunities and companies popping up. Buy some real estate. (laughs) Yeah. That's the last advice. Buy some real estate. (laughs) Pittsburgh specifically. (laughs) Yeah, for sure. Well, thank you so much, Evan, for uh, joining me on the show today. You know, I always have a great time chatting with you. I think you're really great. You have so many experiences and you're hilarious to talk to as well. Thank you. I appreciate that. For the listeners that want to find out more either about Giraffe or to connect with you, what what do you think is the best way to do that? Uh, you can just email me at evan at giraffe.com. That's E-V-A-N at J-I-R-A-V.com. It's a misspelling of a giraffe, but we spell it with a J in the beginning because it's up and to the right, you know, and uh, I'll get back to anybody who emails me. Awesome. Thank you so much, Evan. And if you guys haven't checked out Giraffe yet, please do so. They're a really great tool. And since most of you guys are probably finance leaders, it probably will help you out with your forecasting. So make sure to check that out. And we'll see you again in the next two weeks for the Spend Culture Stories podcast. This is Danny once again, and I hope you have a great rest of your week. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of today. If you like this podcast, 
please make sure to subscribe so you don't miss another great guest. We'd also appreciate it if you give us a five-star review on iTunes for the Apple listeners out there. This podcast is sponsored by Procurify, a spend management solution that is making managing business spend simple. I know there's still a lot of you that are using spreadsheets, credit cards, and expense forms, or a mix of the above. Perhaps you're still using a procurement module in your ERP that is clunky and outdated. Procurify helps you implement proactive controls so that purchases are tracked and approved by the right person before it hits accounts payable. Never have to worry about a surprise invoice ever again. There's a reason why over 400 customers around the world love us. Our award-winning, easy-to-use system is loved by people everywhere. It's actually a purchasing system that your employees will actually want to use, believe it or not. Check us out at Procurify.com. So that's www.procurify.com and mention the podcast for a sweet listener special on our packages. 